Hi, I'm Tyra G., your host of Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Welcome again to our virtual global gathering of phenomenal listeners, fearsome and generous, humble and honest, in pursuit of new possibilities and purpose. You know, here we dig deep and we come up strong. We bravely walk into places where tradition's taught us there's some things we just don't talk about, but not at this table, and not no matter how hard judgment knocks, it can't come in. Beloved, here we live beyond the wreckage. Although many of your voices will speak light into darkness, there is no insignificant person around this table. Each week we start right where we are. Now there is a required dress code that is your authenticity, your inner awesome, and your belief that impossible is merely a word to describe the degree of difficulty. I am so excited about how the show is going. We're celebrating the sixth year of proof that dreams can come true. I thank God for every remembrance of you, for the gifts of your ideas, your presence, and your encouragement. These are the motivations that keep me going. I can't do this show without you. Thanks so very much. You're listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia, on your TV, computer, or mobile device. And we are webcast worldwide on the Internet at www.radiofairfax.org every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Should you miss us, you can catch our archive podcast where you listen to your podcasts. Search for Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Podcast. And if you just feel like connecting with me offline, you know, that's easy. Email me at Tyra at TyraGarlington.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you, Courtney Nero, for composing and performing our Frankly Speaking theme song. And for naming it, I'm listening. For six years, Frankly Speaking with Tyra G has been telling stories to touch the mind, the heart, and the spirit. They've been multicultural, intergenerational, educational, and inspirational. Frankly Speaking stories are intentionally thematic to keep our content fresh and relevant. And they've been told by you, my co-hosts, my listeners. Thank you so much. Lately, the setting for our stories has been a season of uncertainty, unrest, unnatural disasters, and unnecessarily violence and death. We have all been touched by a fresh sense of fragility in ourselves and in our social systems. As a result, this has become a testing time, a time to look hard and recognize that we're doing better than we think we are. This is a time to elevate voices of hope. This is a time to reimagine what's essential. This is a time to emphasize that everyone not only has a story, but is a story. More importantly, this is a time to be encouraged. Consider what happens when we take time to look through our rearview mirror of our eternity. We'll see a journey, not a destination. A process, 
not an event. We will see ourselves continually moving, continually growing, continually becoming. As long as we breathe, the end of our story has not yet been written. This evening, our show theme is curated from the stories that live in the Frankly Speaking Human Library. It is called What I Know Now. Author and poet Maya Angelou says, There is no greater agony than hearing an untold story inside of you. Get your head around that. Hearing an untold story inside of you. I believe there's some stories living inside of us that are aching and begging to be told. But for some reason, perhaps feelings of, feelings of unworthiness, fear, shame, they never get told, even though they sure get lived. Well, life coach and author Yana Von Son believes of her story, and I quote, Life will work for me when I realize I have everything I need within me to create everything I want out there. She asks, what is the difference between joy and happiness? What is the difference between knowing and believing? What is the difference between love and pleasure? She says joy, knowing, and love are what we feel. Happiness, believing, and pleasure are the ways you think. The former are all internal experiences. The latter are responses to external events. The former are things over which we have control through the power of our mind. The latter experiences through which we can be controlled by events and people. If we're waiting for something to happen to make us happy, chances are we're killing off our joy because joy comes through us. Happiness comes to us. If we seek our joy within, we'll be happy no matter what is going on around us. When we know we will be protected, guided, and blessed, it's easy to believe in more than we can see. In that space, it's easy to have faith. If we have, excuse me, if we have bold love in our heart, we will always know what to do and what to say. Nothing can happen for us in the outside world until we create the energy to attract it to and through our inside world. My guest this week is a perfect example of a dynamically unfolding story. He's a journey. He's a process. He's a student, a teacher. He's a living legacy. He's an environmental chemist, an art collector, a photographer, and I believe a delightful storyteller. This evening, you will have to be an active listener using your power of visualization and imagination to get the most of his visits. Welcome to the Frankly Speaking Table, art collector, photographer, and environmental chemist, Patrick Gregory McCoy. Patrick? The mic is yours. Well, thank you very much, Tara, for the wonderful introduction. Um, you asked me to speak about who I am and the why of me. Uh, the thing that's most important at this time in my life, and I'm going to identify that I've been around for a little while, is that I'm an activist art collector. And I want to elaborate on that a little later. But the, I would like to start with 
that I'm a baby boomer. I was born in 1946. I was born in Chicago. I was born on the south side of Chicago, which those people who have some knowledge of the city know that that was the black part of the city. That was actually a black city within a city. So I was born into that environment. And that has had, when I look back on it, a dramatic influence and effect upon my life. I was born in a very small apartment, two rooms. Uh, in fact, I was actually born in the apartment because my mother was dragging a Christmas tree down 63rd Street, which is the main drag at that time for Chicago, black, black, the black Chicago, uh, where all the arts and entertainment, all everything was happening on that street. But we lived right on that street. And she was dragging this Christmas tree home with my older brother in her arm. He's a year older. She's nine months pregnant. And she, we lived on the second floor in this little day apartment. She gets up to the second floor and a ward breaks. And then my grandmother rushes over and delivers me in this little bitty small apartment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was born in the middle of this black city, all in the middle of a two-room apartment that was filled to the brim with paintings, uh, books, and photographs that my father was doing. He was a frustrated artist. My mother was a very creative person. So this little bitty small apartment is where I entered the world and I entered into a space that we would call really like an art gallery. Even though we were poor church mice, we had all of this uh, very visual stimulation in this, this small uh, place. Now, the neighborhood that I grew up in, as I said, was the black part of Chicago. In fact, we didn't use that word at that time. It was more like this was the the Negro uh, area, and it was a very, very dense, high population, but very small space, very dense a community and one that was left because of the prejudice and the racism of, of the time, this was 1940s, uh, it was left to its own uh, uh, deserves as such, such that everybody had to be very, very entrepreneurial and creative in order to make a way because there was no money coming in from the outside. Uh, the black people in that small area which got close to close to a million people uh but they were very independent entrepreneurial and very very creative this when you look back on that time period the 40s 50s and 60s in that area so much cultural and economic and capitalistic activities occurred right in that small area that we're, we're the, the rest of the country is still benefiting from all of the, the outpouring of activity that came out of that black city, inner city. And I was right there in the middle of it. I, and so I saw all this activity. In fact, I kind of believe that this was the norm, <laughs> that black people just did everything and had every kind of store and every kind of business and so forth, because that's what I saw. That's what I lived with. And we very seldom saw any white people. Uh, in, in the growing up. And we also lived outside. 
It was the because of the space constraints, almost everybody spent a lot of their day outside. So it was a very, very active street culture that I grew up in. Now, my father was a frustrated artist. And so he was painting and doing photography. He was just an amazing all-around Renaissance man, but was frustrated and never had any opportunities uh, to really commercially uh, expand on his on his talents. He, he ended up working labor almost all of his life, yet he was a phenomenal uh, photographer and artist and designer and so forth. And my mother, likewise, she was uh, very creative in, in, with the fabric arts. She made clothes and so forth. She made all of our clothes. And she was a fashionista, so she, she made some really phenomenal pieces. But, again, nothing was really commercially successful in that regard. Uh, and we lived up uh, what I thought was a very rich life, but when I look back on it, I reckon we were good church, uh, poor as church might, you know. But we 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 didn't feel poor because one, it was so much uh, stimulation in the home and in the community that we we were living very well in in our, in our heads. Um, I wanted early to follow in my father's footsteps because like I'm, I'm growing up with paintings in our home, photographs in our home. And I had a little bit of a talent uh, in drawing so forth. And I was very intellectually curious as a, uh, as a child. Uh, so I want, kind of wanted to be an artist, just like my father, because I saw his paintings every day. In fact, I was born under one paintings. Uh, but when I got to further along in schooling, because I was avid reader, and like I said, intellectually curious, and also we were outside a lot, especially when we would go to visit my grandmother, she would take us outside and into the woods and show us nature and so forth, that the science and the natural sciences started to really resonate with me. I found them kind of fascinating. I was like, oh, this is this is hip uh, to learn about how things worked and how things came to be and so forth. So by the time I got to high school, I had kind of thrown the art uh, activity to the side and said, you know, I want to I want to study science. I want I want to be a, a a chemist. And so I delved into that real deep. And uh, ended up graduating from high school uh, in 1964 as a valedictorian. And I got a scholarship to the University of Chicago, one of the most prestigious schools in the country. It just happened to be like in walking distance of my house. And like I said, we lived in this black city, even though the university was literally just down the street. We didn't know anything about it because it just wasn't part of our world. I ended up going there because I had a girlfriend in high school, and she was very aggressive and wanting to go to, to school. I, coming out of a family where no one had been in college, so I didn't have that push, even though I was very, I'm very smart, I'm valedictorian, uh, but I didn't have any real push to go to college. But Sheila wanted to go, 
And she said she wanted to go to the University of Chicago. So I said, okay, I'll go there with you. And so we both applied, and I got in. And then, then she got in. So she was upset because about a week passed between the time I got in and then she did. So when I went there, like I said, it's very prestigious, very rigorous school. And I'm planning to major in chemistry, naive, <laughs> thinking that I would come out of a, what they call ghetto school and succeed at, at one of the best schools in the country in this very, very uh, serious program. Uh, but I found I was in heaven. I really did enjoy that <laughs> uh, activities. So I ended up graduating, actually finishing uh, with a degree in chemistry and didn't really know what to do at that time because I didn't really, at that, when I graduated from college, I didn't really want to go into the laboratories. I still had a, a sense of community, which growing up in that black city just forced upon us. We all thought in communal with a communal mindset, mm-hmm. and, and and that I find today is missing. You can, I, I kind of regret that the young people can, are now more focused on me, the, the individual, instead of the community. Is that even when I went to college, I was going for my community. I knew that I had to succeed because of the people in the block, the people in my school. It was beyond just me. I had to do it for for us. Uh, so that first two years after graduating, I decided to go back and teach. And I went and taught at the school I graduated from, Inglewood High School. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I fell in love with the concept of teaching. I loved it. I didn't realize that I would like it so much because it, I had mainly been a sort of a person reticent to get in front of people and speak. I'm very knowledgeable about all kinds of stuff, but I just didn't feel like I was comfortable speaking and, and especially uh, professing to think to other people. But that first couple of weeks, I found out I love it. I love being in front of young people and telling them and, sh- and thinking about new ways to get concepts, complex concepts across to them. I, I was in heaven for those first two years. And then, um, Lo and behold, I was uh, transferred because I, I think I was doing too well <laughs> at, at this ghetto school. And I was transferred in this move by the Chicago public um, school system to mm-hmm. integrate the faculty. And they sent me over to a white school that did not need my, my abilities mm-hmm. and quickly laid me off after a month or two. Oh, my goodness. So often I didn't have a job. (laughs) So I was looking around and like, okay, how am I going to pay the rent and so forth? And I had no job prospects. And I saw a listing for a chemist in Gary, Indiana, in their air pollution agency. And I said, I don't know a thing about air pollution, but this is a job and I can't, I got got to do something. So I took the job. Turns out, again, after a very short period of time, I found out I really enjoyed <laughs> the study and the activity of working in the environment. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking back, this is what my grandmother had instilled in me. 
the love of the environment, of that we need to protect it. So I was in, for a while there, I was really just in, in seven heaven, learning and learning and learning about it, advancing myself. Uh, and then I said, you know what, I'm going to go back and get a degree in environmental science. Uh, and so I started that, finished it in 10 years, because um, I, I ended up doing a lot of working in the environmental field. Uh, and especially in Gary, which was really one of the the armpits of the nation at the time. And, uh, I was the the field I was in. It was air pollution control, and Gary was like filthy, just unbelievable filthy. So I had a lot of work to do and a lot of learning about the field. And we did make some some dramatic strides. But I got a name for myself in the area of environmental protection and enforcement and eventually got a job with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. So that's where I really became an environmentalist, and I took that energy that I had demonstrated at, at uh, in high school uh, and put it into the environmental field. In fact, I went on to get all kinds of awards and, and honors and so forth, and even presidential uh, recognition for my work uh, in the environmental field. I became a, a national expert. Uh, because I was very aggressive in pursuing that. But all during that time, even though I had kicked the art to the side, <laughs> yes. all during that time, I was still kind of interested in art and being in that environment. In fact, when I was in college, my roommate came to me. He was an art major, and I'm studying chemistry. And I don't know how they put us together. Uh, he came back to the class, to, to our room with a lithograph that he had done. And he said, look at this, I made this. And I said, oh, that's nice. And I said, what is it? He said, it's a lithograph. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> so he explained it to me. And, and then I said, that's very nice. Are you planning to sell this? Now, let me tell the audience, this is 1968. Got it. Nobody had any money, and I truly didn't have no <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what I'm doing. Ask him if he's getting ready to sell it. So he said, yeah, I'll sell it. So we talked and talked and talked and agreed on $10. <laughs> For those who were young, that was a lot of money in 1968. But I paid it. Now, the reason I'm bringing that up is because many decades later, I realized mm-hmm. that activity, that exchange is when I became an art collector. There you go. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> that well, I think I, I think in all honesty, uh, we'll put a comma there. I think in all honesty, the listeners need to know I have had a tour of uh, <laughs> Patrick's home. And uh, I don't know where the home is because everything there is a gallery. And that's what made me. I said, uh, you got to do the show. I know you can make it live. And But one thing I want to do before we go there is I want to highlight something you said that I think is significant in terms of our society today. And it was a generational and probably cultural or maybe uh, racial, I don't know, difference where you lived as I remember living for the community. When you mm-hmm. did something, you felt you were representing the community. Your your success was a gift 
to the community, whereas today there is a different level of focus. And we may be going back with the very young generation to community sharing, that kind of thing, but focusing on self bubbled up, and we kind of lost that. And I, too, grew up in public housing, and I understand exactly what you're saying. Living outside, you know, that's the only place you could. (laughs) You you had your small rooms, and uh, but in public housing, the family exploded, Mm -hmm. you know. And I can remember when we had family picnics, and all the the children thought, oh, this is wonderful. We're having a big thing. What we did not know was one family had the meat, the other family had the potatoes, the other family had the vegetables, etc. So I just want, wanted to add a, a splash of color to uh, what you're saying. And um, uh, Patrick told me that he was, he was, what is it, two blocks away from the L train in Chicago, yeah. which meant he yeah. wasn't in a really quiet neighborhood no no it was even closer it went right past our window there you go so (laughs) i i you know our theme is what you know now but i want people to really begin to feel as i do your your journey okay yeah you thought it was this i love your grandmother by the way getting you out in the fields all right (laughs) i got i love that Okay, so um, I'm back now. You bought the lithograph, and that was your that was your entree into art mm-hmm. collecting. Only you didn't know, right? I didn't know that. In fact, I kept buying things after that, mm-hmm. and kept denying when people would say, "You're an art collector," and I said, "No, I'm not an art collector. I'm just getting things that I like." And and I grew up in an environment where there was always things on the wall, so I was just replicating what I grew up with. Yes. So that went on. I was acquired because once I got the job at the EPA, I had some money. I could buy um, artwork, and I, and I was moving in this community in the south side of Chicago, which was very artistic. And I was moving around in, in that world with these people. So I was going to places where there were art for sale, and, and you know, this was the, the revolutionary period. So everybody's fists was in the air and the big afros, and we were all buying art to uh, going to our apartment, so I was right there doing it and doing it and kept doing it and <laughs> to the point where I I had a significant amount of art in my apartment everywhere I lived. And people in the artists would tell me, you're an art collector, you're an art collector. And I said, no, I'm not. And it was only around 2000, the year 2000, that I had a conversation with myself, an epiphany, and I recognized that, no, I really am an art collector. Mm-hmm. And what happened was that I had been believing misconceptions, myths, things that were not true. Mm-hmm. I believe that you said you were an art collector. You had to be rich. And I truly wasn't rich. Mm-hmm. And I believe that you had to be very, very concerned about privacy and security and stuff like that. And that you wouldn't let people see what you have and so forth if you were if you said you were an art collector, and I've always had an open door policy and parties and everything in my house, all amongst the art. So I just said, no, I can't be an art collector. I'm not concerned like that. And I also believe that if you said you were an art collector, you had to know 
everything about art. Mm-hmm. Everybody that's ever done anything, the names all, all that you knew everything. And I'm thinking, I studied chemistry. I never studied art. <laughs> I don't know this stuff. And then I believe that if you said you were an art collector, you had to be very concerned about the investment concept of how much this is going to be worth and that you know it, this is going to be worth so much. And, so, and I could care less. Mm-hmm. So I was believing these things, and that was my rationale for saying I'm not an art collector. And then in 2000, I came to a realization that, that those things are wrong. And the reason I got to that point, I started thinking about music. Because mm. music, just like the art, is a, form, is a part of our culture. You know, musical arts, the, the visual arts. And I'm thinking, in the musical arts, you don't have to have nothing no money. It's, it is not. It's for everybody. Right, right, right. It's not. A, it's not an elitist thing at all. And musical arts, you share inherently. You just automatically share. Yes. And you don't have to know anything about music to love it. You know. <laughs> so, I kept looking at that. And I said, "Wait a minute. These things that I believe that apply to the visual arts do not apply to music. And everybody is involved." And music in our musical culture is so alive and electric, it, and you don't have to like the same thing, but you do. You are going to like some kind of a music. Mm-hmm. So I looked at that and said, "Wait a minute, the visual arts, these perceptions that most of us have are wrong. We got to do something because it destroys, it inhibits our visual arts culture, and that's very important for African Americans to have things." that speak to visually speak to our life, our experience, our, 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 our future. So I saw a need to speak to these misconceptions. Mm. It was, it, and this has happened around 2000. I got together with three other people, two women and a guy. They were art collectors here in Chicago and they all were, they all had the same idea that our visual arts culture needs to be promoted. Mm -hmm. We are collecting individually and not thinking uh, about the the fact that nobody else is doing this or they are are blinded by these misconceptions. So the four of us got together and we decided to form an organization called Diasporisms that is charged to promote collecting of art in the African diaspora community. We want our people to become art collectors. Ignore, get rid of these misconceptions. You are an art collector if you collect art, period. And that's what I saw I did back in 1968. I just saw something I liked, and I wanted, and I got it. And that made me an art Well, let me ask you this. When you gave the title of your organization, our international audience may not understand the term diaspora. Can you give us? Yes, uh, yes, please. Uh, It's about the the people that have been dispersed. Mm -hmm. And we are a a people that have been dispersed Mm -hmm. through this enslavement period of the four or 500 years of Africans being removed from Africa and brought into the Americas uh, to work as uh, 
as in flakes and that disbursement has been put into a new environment america has created a whole new culture mm-hmm. we have been very inventive and created a culture and we still have connections with the culture that uh from the motherland so we are essentially a diaspora rhythm. We are something that has been spread out into the rest of the world. And our artwork is a reflection, just like our music and our literature and our fashion. They are rhythms from the original source. Yes. Okay. I, I like so that. that. I like that. We, yeah. That's, that's why we call ourselves diaspora rhythm. I'm sorry I interrupted, but I thought that was a little bit of history, a little bit of culture that everyone really needs to understand because that um, – go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, most certainly. Most certainly it does. Um, and we've, we're now 20 years in mm-hmm. uh, doing this work. Uh, we've, d- we've done all kinds of things. We have uh, exhibitions. We have one presently at Navy Pier in Chicago. It will be up until February. Uh, where we are bringing work out of our collections. Oh. And we, most of us, collect exclusively African or African-American artists. And most of them are living artists because we want to promote the visual art culture within our communities. Mm -hmm. So we've been doing that. We've had, we've adopted schools. We bring artists in to help the students in their um, art careers. Uh, We have Educational activities for the community in regards to art and art collecting and so forth. We're we're doing things to try to break down these misconceptions about art collecting. That it's not as an elitist thing. You can be the average Joe Blow if you see something you like and you acquire it. You're an art collector. It's just that simple. I love it. So we've been doing it. Yep. (laughs) And I have been doing it. I think I'm on steroids. Because I've got about 1,300, 1,400 pieces in my collection. And I have all different types of media, uh, paintings and drawings and photographs and ceramic and sculpture and fabric pieces and collage and so forth. I, do, I love all kinds of things. And almost all of it, about 90% of it, is African or African-American artists, and 90% of it is Chicago. Because I believe that every community has an inordinate large amount of very creative artistic people and most of us have blinders on and we don't know them we act as though they you have to go to the end of the earth to find art when it's right down the street from and i think and some of our um some of our african americans i noticed you start out with negro we forgot colored we've had several (laughs) names as a race uh we're, we're constantly evolving uh, but I remember how many artists had to go away, had to go to Europe to oh, yeah. get recognition. African-American artists had to go to Europe to get recognition. And uh, there were collections, like you said, that nobody was aware of. And mm-hmm. I had the privilege when I was in Florida, we had an African-American museum that purchased the Barnett Aiden collection. And that oh, was yeah. a number of African-American artists that were part of the Renaissance period. Oh, that's mm-hmm. something. Can you talk about that, Patrick, a little bit? <laughs> or maybe a tiny bit. Just a tiny bit. Yeah. You know, I'm, a, I'm an avid 
supporter of Chicago. So everybody talks about the Harlem Renaissance. I know, but I just want you to I want you to give it a footnote. The footnote is that most of the people that that are part and are recorded to be a part of the Harlem Renaissance actually came from Chicago. Uh oh. Is it Chicago? Oh yeah. I didn't know this. This is good news. Okay. Oh yeah. yeah they came through Chicago and then went to New York. Okay. And New York just does a better job of selling themselves. <laughs> so, but it it actually uh, Chicago is a fount of cultural activity. Most of the major cultural institutions and phenomena they were all started here in Chicago. Mm. As I said, we were in this uh, black city, and we had to make do for ourselves, so we became very creative. So you get all kinds of the, the people in the theater and dance. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. arts, and music, and musical arts. Just Chicago was the place where, where the only thing started. Or they, they got their real strength right here. So it's nothing for, I, I feel like I'm in a line of people that found and create organizations that promote aspects of our culture. So us coming, the, the four of us getting together and creating an organization that promotes art collecting is just a norm for Chicago because we, we did it out of an organization that was created by Margaret Burroughs and she was the first one to create a, a, an African-American history museum and so forth. We are in a line of people. Absolutely. And I, I am familiar with her. Uh, what I what I also appreciate, and that's why I love doing the show, I did not know. I knew what Chicago had. I did not know the journey from Chicago to New York where uh, yeah. it, it was easier, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, you know what? When you have a black city inside of a city, yes, you have inherently a black audience. Gotcha, gotcha, so, yes. So all of these things that might have a struggle in another city just had an audience there. People would be at every kind of a set, you know, I mean, I, I grew up when we were still bar hopping. You know, we part you go maybe five or six places in one night. You know, to hear a, a different musician or or see a different dancer or whatever or different art shows. We it was just it was very rich. And it still is, and it still is. Now, Patrick, since you're talking about art shows, why don't we use this as a segue into your current exhibit and give it some play? How about that? Okay, what happens? is that the combination of all these things. I'm, I'm working for the EPA in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And I into into the concept of being an environmentalist, so I gave up my car, and I'm riding a bike. I still do, riding my bike everywhere. That was my form of transportation. And I had been exposed to photography through my father. Like I said, my father was a photographer and so forth. But I didn't want to have him teach me photography. No, that was, I was wanted to do it myself. Okay. So in the mid eighties, I wrote out a commitment to myself. I said, I'm going to teach myself photography and I'm going to do it by carrying a camera that this 35 millimeter camera, I'm going to carry it with me everywhere I go in this whole year. Mm. And I'm going to take pictures every day of this year. And the third part of the commitment, which was very strange, I don't even understand why I wrote it out, 
uh, I said, if anybody asks me to take their picture during this time period, I'm going to stop what I'm doing and take their picture. Mm-hmm. Now, I look back on that and say, why did I write that? Because who asked people, strangers, to, to take their picture? You know, especially in the 1980s, you know, when you don't have any way to instantly show them what you have. And people would not, I always thought they wouldn't want you to have their images and not know what, they, what you're going to do with it. Correct. But I did write that out. And so I am happily riding my bicycle every day to the downtown area, mm-hmm. to all of these neighborhoods, and invariably people would holler out at me, especially for the projects, the public housing, so forth. They would holler out and say, hey, take my picture. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? So I'd have to stop, mm-hmm. go over there, take their picture, and they never asked me what am I going to do with it. Are you going to give it to me? Are you going to – nothing. They just would pose and i take the picture. <laughs> that went on for a whole year. I ended up with thousands and thousands of images of people asking me to take their picture. Almost 99% of them were men that mm. were on the street. I could explain to you the phenomena. It would take a little bit of time, but the 1980s was a very interesting time period because of Reagan and so forth joblessness had just now started to happen because prior to that, Chicago was a place where you always could get a job. But the 1980s, all of a sudden, black people, black men were now being put out of jobs. In the public housing, uh, the the change went from support for families to supporting women with children. Men now were excess, and they had to get out of the the housing, especially for certain times of the month. So they would go into the downtown area or be on the street. Uh, all, it was all kinds of other phenomenon, even a gang phenomenon that created a flux, of a flow of young black men into the downtown area right where I was riding my bike. So all these people are now approaching me. They see me going past and say, take my picture, take my picture. Uh, so I ended up with just thousands of photo- photographs, very interesting ones. I didn't think much about it. Uh, I did have my father make a dark room for me. So what I did in the evenings after I got back home from work is I developed the film and print photographs. And I'd carry with them in my little backpack. Mm-hmm. And if I ran into any of the people, I'd give them their picture. And that just sent it off the moon, you know, because these people were getting really, really good black and white photographs, five by sevens. That uh, of themselves, which more than likely had never seen any good pictures of themselves. Right. So they became a thing. And uh, even in the downtown area, people would uh, look for me coming because so many people asked me to photograph that they would go through this big pile of photographs and look for themselves and, and their friends and so forth. It became a thing. At the end of the 80s, mm-hmm. Two things happened. AIDS hit us, hit our community. And so all these young men that had been hanging around in the downtown area, all of a sudden now they're starting to drop, uh, you know, actually contracting HIV or AIDS. And that was because they did not initially believe that it could affect them. Uh-huh. It was that, uh, that misconception. And so they were hit very hard because they didn't believe it could help. It could hurt them. 
and also that the government did not do anything to try to correct the problem as how quickly we saw they develop um, vaccines and so forth for COVID, they waited 10 plus years to do anything for AIDS. Mm. So people just died. Uh, the second thing that happened is crack came into Chicago, crack cocaine. Mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, interesting historical note, Chicago was a gang, a black gang city. It was really big, big, big gangs. The, the El Rookins, the gangster disciples, the, the Latin kings, the, so forth. And they controlled all through the 70s and the 80s. They controlled the drug traffic in okay. Chicago. Mm-hmm. And they kept crack cocaine out. They All the other drugs could come into Chicago. They kept crack cocaine out. The feds attacked the gangs in the beginning of the 1990s, broke them up. And then all of a sudden there was this flood of crack cocaine coming in the city, still there now. And as a result, the whole scene just changed. It mm. became very violent. It became a, a place where you couldn't keep anything. Everybody's house, car, everything was being broken into. I'm riding like a little idiot with a camera hanging off my neck. Right. And <laughs> so I always became a target, so I couldn't keep a camera. So I gave it up. And right after the 1990s started, I just I couldn't keep a camera, gave it up, stopped taking photographs, threw all the negatives in a box, and forgot about it for 30 years. Wow. And and then recently, by a fluke, I was in a, a conversation at an art reception, and this guy was saying he was working on a show about AIDS. Now, this was uh, in 2016. Mm-hmm. They were celebrating the 50th anniversary of the AIDS crisis. And he said they're, they're doing this show, and they wanted to have uh, work from artists that were operating during the time of the AIDS crisis, but they were having a hard time finding African Americans that had done anything in the 1980s, like photographs and so on. So I'm at a cocktail party, and I'm saying, well, I took photographs in the 1980s. <laughs> he said, you did? Uh-huh. Can I see them? And when he saw them, they immediately took five of my photographs, put them in the show. It got rave reviews. And then people started pushing me, saying, you need to do a book mm-hmm. of these photographs. Mm-hmm. And so I have subsequently had uh, two shows and have one up right now of the photographs from that time period, a little sampling, to help me raise money to uh, put to, put together this book. And uh, the shows have received rave reviews, mm-hmm. uh, lots of publicity. Um, I, I'm I'm impressed. It it's sort of uh, uh, I don't know. It, it it's kind of overwhelming to me because I never thought of myself as an artist. I've been an art collector, and I've always been on the other side of praising people's work. And so it's kind of strange when people say, oh, your work is so great, blah, blah, blah. I'd like to have some. It, it makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable because I've never thought of myself as being an artist. But um, that's what's happening right now, and I'm, I'm pleased. I have a quote here I want to share based on your exhibition. It's a quote from Juarez Hawkins. Oh, uh, yes. And I quote, uh, he's an artist, educator, and curator, and he wrote, McCoy and his camera fulfilled an unspoken need for black men to be seen. 
seen by someone who did not objectively objectify them as other, but as insider who allowed them, paraphrasing Langston Hughes, to be their beautiful black selves. That's quite a tribute, you know? Yes, it is. But let me correct you. Uh-oh. Uh, Juarez Hawkins is a female. Did I say his? Yes, you did. But wait a minute. I purposely chose her to curate. One, I know that she's, she's an artist. I collect her work. She's very smart, and she does very good curation. But I said, you know what? These photographs I have are like 99% men. Yes. And I would like to see a woman have a perspective on this. So I asked her to do it. Well, let me, let me do this right away. I have an urgent need, Patrick, because okay. I know you still are in contact. You're partnering with her, right? That's correct. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, then I know she's going to hear this show, and I want to give a shout-out to her and a huge apology for not understanding she was she and for, oh, yeah. <laughs> and for a woman of color who has had many challenges, uh, I, I want to shout out and, and just praise what she's doing as well, and I want to praise what you're doing for us as women, okay? Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's, it, was a, it was a conscious decision on my part. I said, I want this to have a female perspective in it. And she did exactly, she, she selected all the photographs, and they are amazing what she selected. She picked, she picked what I would have picked. See, you know, sometimes we're really not in charge of our successes, are we? Or the people you know, we, we choose uh, to, to be with us. Um, I have two things to do, uh, but I think what I'm going to do, since we both are slaves to the clock, I'm going to ask you to read the letter that you chose. I, I originally said to Patrick, like most of my guests, uh, I'd like for you to write a letter to your younger self. He says, no can do. And, and so I give people options, and he has written a letter to his mentees. And would you mind taking the time reading that for me, Patrick? Most certainly. Most certainly. This is a letter to the mentees. For the past 20 years, I have been mentoring younger people. And after President Obama asked black men in the, his 2012 State of the Union address to step up and mentor young black boys, I took that task more serious. So I'm saying today to my mentees to spend most of your time being in the present mode. Live life to the fullest. Enjoy the now. Mm. Recognize you will make mistakes. All of us do. But do not anguish with thoughts of what happened in the past, nor fret or be apprehensive about what the future will bring. Do not live under thoughts of guilt for mistakes made. Mistakes are lessons. Learn the lesson and move on. Do not fear the future nor the natural world. You are going to have to live in both. So get ready. If you prepare yourself by pursuing your interests, whatever they be, with a desire to excel in that pursuit and to not compromise your principles in that process, you will end up much further in, an, in a much better social position and mental state than when you started. Your journey is your journey. 
it is not wise to compare your journey with that of others. Have a healthy respect for your body. Please keep in mind that you are always part of a community, no matter how strong, competent, and successful you are as an independent being. Be open to taking and working with others, and they can teach you. And most importantly, speak effectively about your life when you speak to others. I'm not saying to speak proper, but to be effective in your communication. Avoid or minimize your use of the current speech pattern of saying things are like. Say what things, concepts, events actually are. Saying things that are like something is weak and open to confusion and misunderstanding when you can easily say what they are. You will reap benefits when your words are always understood to reflect the reality and not a nebulous cloud of uncertainty and imprecision. Wow. (laughs) I think... uh... For whatever reason, you're in the position of mentor is a blessing to many. I really like enjoy the now, and I really like say what you are, not say what things are, not what they are like. And I'm a person that is always encouraging everyone that I engage with is to separate your circumstances, what's happening to you from who you were created to be because if you don't do that you get stuck sometimes in a place called unworthiness feeling like that but I like to end my show Patrick with a doggy bag of uh, spiritual encouragement for the week for folks who say I am tired I am tired of being tired some of them say you know I'm done I'm out of here others say is that all there is And I'd like to um, tie that, that kind of feeling, to what's going on with all the unrest. Again, from uh, Ms. Von Sand, who offers this thought. The starting point for preventing wars, listen to this, is by understanding and discovering personal inner peace. And she suggests we will know peace when we reclaim the pieces of ourselves we have somehow let go go of in the process of life and I quote if you can't seem to get it together it may be because you've given too much of yourself away it may be that you have compromised over compromised given in and given over so much of yourself that you do not know where all the pieces of you are scattered perhaps the things you thought you needed to get love to experience yourself as lovable, to be acknowledged, to be accepted, to increase your value, and to establish your worth have left you splintered, shattered, and broken into so many pieces you feel like you'll never pull yourself together again. Don't worry. There's a way to pull yourself back together. You must examine all the times you gave others the right to make your decisions when you expected others to do for you what only you had the power to do, when you gave others the right to decide your destiny, and when you dishonored yourself and others to please others, in order to please others, excuse me, 
when you remember what you have done, forgive yourself. I think you said that, mm. Patrick. Forgive mm. yourself. Most importantly, you just say never again. Mm-hmm. I want to add a personal mm. thing. I want everyone to understand that you're amazing just as you are right this minute. You're stronger than you feel. You're smarter than you know. You're more beautiful than you believe. And you are more loved than you can ever imagine. I need you to treat yourself like someone you love. You've been listening to Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. On Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia, and webcast worldwide on www.radiofairfax.org every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. My guest this week, my inspirational guest, my historian, my new friend, has been Mr. Patrick McCoy. Oh, thank you. Until next time, this is Tyra G. I'm here, and I'm listening, and I love you. <laughs>